You're listening to Cancer Covered. The groundwork behind what we do today was from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when there wasn't a standard treatment for cancer. And people were randomized to no treatment versus chemotherapy because that's a tool that we had. And now because of those brave people and brave investigators at the time that really asked tough questions when the medical systems were against them, people thought that cancer doctors giving chemotherapy was cruel and unusual to patients. They persevered and believed in it, and it changed lives. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. We laugh at medieval ideas of medical treatments, leeching, bloodletting, cupping, and blistering. But those treatments, as ridiculous as they seem to us now, were based on the best ideas of the time, ideas that a lot of people believed in. Some of those wrong ideas even made intuitive sense. But until we actually started putting medical treatments to the test, we couldn't always tell which ideas were right and which ones just sounded right. And so a lot of people suffered through unhelpful treatments. Some, like George Washington, probably died because of them. Mistrust of intellectuals and scientists is on the rise in the U.S. right now, and treatments based on right-sounding ideas rather than evidence is making a comeback. Even things like cupping and blistering are making a comeback. We've been down this dark road before, and we'll stay on it unless we remember why we started demanding evidence for medical treatments in the first place. In this episode, we'll go all the way back to the 11th century to explore how evidence-based medicine and clinical trials started, and we'll trace that legacy all the way through to today. Brian, Matthew, good to see you guys. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So when we want to call out something as a a bad idea or ill-informed or brutal, we'll often describe it as medieval. Oh, that's medieval medical practice. What was so wrong with medieval medicine, Brian or Matthew? It wasn't really based on science. It wasn't based on um, a history of testing things, what's right, what's wrong. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of people thought that the best thing to do if you're sick was to stay away from the doctor because a lot of those treatments actually harmed people and shortened lives. It's kind of good to know our roots and how bad things really were. We did a lot of awful things to patients in the Middle Ages. What were some of them? So a common one is bloodletting. And there's actually two modern diseases, polycythemia vera and hemochromatosis, where we still remove blood from patients as part of the treatment. The problem is that might have worked in the Middle Ages, and they made the next 99 patients suffer as a result. Right. Because most people didn't have hemochromatosis or polycythemia vera. They were doing it for pneumonia. They were doing it for typhus. They were doing it for cholera. They were doing it for... For their bad humors. Or the life expectancy at the time was such that they would have never had problems with those diseases. Right. They did things like rub sheep dung into the wound to create pus, thinking that the pus that they were creating was part of the healing process. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Laudable pus. That's actually where that uh, term that's still used a, a bit in surgery comes from. Um, Lots of treatments with toxic heavy metals. The Chinese emperors, not quite the Middle Ages, but they didn't live very long and they didn't have very many children and whole dynasties fell due to the lack of heirs. A lot of it was the amount of lead that they were ingesting and mercury in their pursuit of longevity. They were actually dying early and wrecking their dynasty. 
Right. And that was really the case. Uh, real uh, medical experimentation didn't start until centuries after philosophers like Aristotle were putting ideas down on paper about how they thought the body worked, things that kind of made sense to them at the time, but weren't based on any kind of evidence or experimentation. And even regular people could tell that the things weren't helping. But it was a really long time where before people like Avicenna and Vesalius would actually start doing a little more direct observation and start asking questions. But but the first real medical experiments didn't happen until uh, about 1753, at least the first one was recorded. And that was when a Scottish naval surgeon named James Lind, who was trying to develop a treatment for scurvy, which was a, a real problem for naval sailors at the time, divided sick people into several different groups and tested different treatments and found out that the ones that got vitamin C, citrus, lemons, or limes were the only ones that got better. And, uh, and that really changed everything for the not just the sailors, but how people approached medicine. Yeah. The British Navy at the time was trying to have longer times on station. They were blockading the French and teeth were falling out and hair was lost. That was bad and they didn't know why. I don't know how he got the idea to try citrus. He obviously didn't know that it was vitamin C treating right. treating it at the time, but by testing his idea, that paved the way for better treatment and why the British naval sailors are called uh, limeys. I didn't know that. Yeah. One of the really frustrating things about science and medicine and humans generally is how very long it takes for people to let go of entrenched ideas. And this show me the evidence approach to medicine didn't exactly take off like gangbusters from that point. It was really still another couple hundred years before we enter the modern era of medicine where we've got rigorous trials for everything. Yeah, there's a real problem that exists today is this appeal to authority. I'm an expert, and so what I say is true. It may be true, but unless you test it and know what's right and what's wrong, we say that a lot, even in a lot of areas of medicine today. Yeah, and that's in some ways no different than the beginning of medieval medicine, which was Aristotle said it, so it's got to be true. And he was the authority is the only authority we need. We don't have to test his ideas. And that's supposed to be the beauty of science. It's supposed to be the best idea wins, and everybody, no matter who they are, has to prove their ideas, bring evidence, or, or don't come. But once experimentation and really disciplined use of science and applying its principles to medicine started in the uh, latter part of the 19th century and certainly in the beginning in the middle part of the 20th is when it really took off, there's been some detours along the way. And some of people's concern about medical experiments and the mistrust that they have of clinical trials comes from that time. What was the first one? Well, the Tuskegee was 1930 to 1970. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened at Tuskegee? Well, they didn't really understand the nature of the natural history of syphilis. And there's an unfortunate clinical trial done to explore the natural history of syphilis. They had a number of African-American men who were diagnosed with syphilis, and some of them they treated and some of them they didn't. And even when treatment was widely accepted, could cure syphilis, they were denied that treatment and allowed to develop the long-term complications of syphilis, which 
ends up being neurodegenerative disease and shortening of people's lives. And none of them were really aware that they were part no, of the experiment. No. They, they just thought they were just informed that they were getting free medical care as part of government package. I can't remember exactly uh, what the terms were, but no, no one consented and they weren't informed. Yeah, they, they did not have informed consent at that time. Right. And one of the things that came from that experience when that all came to light was patients really need to be informed and need to consent to investigational treatment. It was close on the heels of that where there was another really notorious abuse of consent, and that happened in the Nazi regime in the Second World War. Yeah, just horrendous experiments on people that had no choice. Right. So it wasn't long after that, and actually as part of the Nuremberg trials that the principle, some of these principles that we talk about were first articulated and, and are now a standard part of what everybody who participates in clinical research or conducts it uh, has to learn about, actually, on a routine and a regularly recurring basis about why the abuses took place and the importance of avoiding them. Everybody has to be informed about what they're consenting to, and people have to freely agree to participate in clinical trials research. So, Any rostered investigator at any site in across the United States that does clinical trials through the National Cancer Institute, through their institution, needs to do a good clinical practice education that goes through the, the history of all this and needs to go through a series of questions to make sure that our investigators are well informed about why these things are important, why informed consent is important, why equipoise is important, and need to have an awareness about the history of the abuses that occurred in the past that we need to protect against in the future. You talked about equipoise just now, and for some of our listeners, what is the idea of equipoise in research and why is it so important and how do trials go about maintaining it? Well, it's okay to think that one treatment is better than another, but to do a clinical trial, you can't know that. You can't know the answer to the question that you're posing. There has to be some degree of uncertainty that a newer and better treatment is going to be newer and better. Meaning that the people who are giving the treatments, if it's a what's called a blinded trial, can't know and can't be informed whether they're actually giving the treatment that they're excited about or not. That's one way that it can be uh, controlled. The other way is by randomization. A couple of examples would be back to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. They knew that treating syphilis was beneficial at that right. time. And so that wasn't randomized. But the other is the famous British Medical Journal parachute paper. Tell us about that. They wanted to randomize people that would only accept randomized trials to guide their decisions to a randomized trial of jumping out of an airplane with or without a parachute. And of course, this was a thought experiment. So there was no equipoise in that experiment and no one signed up for it. Right. Can't imagine why. But it's never been proven that wearing a parachute helps you jump out of an airplane. That's true. Just experience. Because a study will never be conducted. Well, technically, it doesn't help you jump out of the airplane. It's the landing. It's the landing. <laughs> This is what happens when you bring two dads to the podcast recording. You get dad jokes. <laughs> so what are some of the common anxieties that people have about participating in clinical research? The one that you hear is, I don't want to be a guinea pig. And clinical trials are just randomly drawn out of a hat. There's a lot of work that goes on. And until it's presented going from 
an idea to lab work to animal research, which probably could be its own discussion. And then very early first in human trials, but a very rigorous process from an idea to actually having patients participate in a clinical trial. Yeah, it's if people are worried about, well, if I sign up for clinical trials, then somebody's just going to be able to wing it, experiment on me. it's it's nothing like that. There's a lot of hurdles that have to be cleared. The idea has to be sound. It has to be accepted. It has to be backed up by a lot of preliminary evidence before we can even get access to experimental drugs to be used in a very, very controlled setting. People worry a lot about uh, placebos or about being under-informed or incompletely informed. What what do you, do you say to them, Brian? Well, there's not a ton of placebo-controlled trials. Um Currently, there's been improvements in medicine where there's a standard of care for just about everything we do. So most of the clinical trials that we do these days compare one standard of care versus a different standard of care or standard of care plus a newer and potentially better drug. So it it typically isn't you're going to get treatment for your cancer or you'll be randomized to not get treatment for your cancer. That that almost never happens. Does it happen in late stage situations where there really aren't any good options to try to get something, anything to help patients? Yes, but it it hardly ever happens these days. But never without complete consent and awareness of patients that you may or may not be getting the the agent. Yeah, there were some very brave patients and clinicians in the 60s, 70s, probably even to the 80s, that helped us find out some key information that chemotherapy after high-risk breast cancer or lung cancer versus nothing improved survival. Or the idea of quality of life, that treating aggressive stage four metastatic cancers not only prolongs life, but you actually feel better despite being on chemotherapy if you're controlling the cancer because the ultimate worst symptom is growing and progressing and spreading cancer. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree, sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. The groundwork behind what we do today was from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when there wasn't a standard treatment for cancer and people were randomized to no treatment versus chemotherapy because that's a tool that we had. And now because of those brave people and brave investigators at the time that really asked tough questions when the medical systems were against them, people thought that cancer doctors giving chemotherapy was cruel and unusual to patients. They persevered and believed in it, and it changed lives, and they increased the chance of curing a cancer, and 
improved our ability to control cancer long-term sometimes. And it wasn't even just the approach to cancer and how to use the drugs. It was the way that they develop systems to share information, to share data, and to share patients. And that definitely comes from the 60s and the 70s and uh, some of the uh, work and the systems that were developed out of the NIH. Um, Tell us about some of that structure and uh, what it's like that, that we inherited from that time. Well, it's evolved over time. The initial, what we call cooperative clinical trial group started, I believe, with the CALGB, the Cancer and Leukemia and Blood Group B that was formed by just a couple of different centers across the country trying to standardize what they were doing, trying to cure acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children. And they had some interesting developments with one or two drugs that allowed patients to get into a remission where it was universally a death sentence in the past and had new opportunities and were really visionaries to say, we can't do this alone. When we're seeing a handful of children at our site every year, we need numbers to be able to prove what treatments are effective, what treatments are not, and try to cure this devastating disease. We need to come together as a medical system, as a research community to try to do this better. And that was the, the initiation of what we have today. And it's evolved over time. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a number of cooperative research groups that formed for adults as well as pediatric cancers. But then those started to really take off in the into the 1970s and into the early 2000s. There was, I think, nine adult clinical trial groups founded by the National Cancer Institute across the country. And they had consultants come in and determine if this is the most efficient way to do things. And the recommendations at that time was to consolidate these nine groups down to four or five groups to really make sure that we weren't duplicating clinical trials across all of those groups that we had in a line vision and process throughout the National Cancer Institute. And now with those four or five groups for the adults, it's the NRG, the Alliance, ECOG, Akron, and SWOG. I think that's just four adult ones and then the pediatric group. To run a breast cancer trial in this country, not only do you need to propose it through one of those four groups, it also needs to go through a NCI steering committee to make sure we aren't trying to do the same trial and have competing trials across the NCI-funded program. So things have evolved over time. We've got more people involved over time and kind of parallel, but in a delayed fashion to the funding of these clinical trial cooperative groups. There is also the acknowledgement that 85% of cancer care is provided in the community, not at large academic centers, such that the NCI identified that in the 70s, had mechanisms by which it could bring clinical trials to community oncologists and to patients out in the community where most of them receive their care. That evolved around the same time as the consolidation down to four adult groups and one pediatric group to what's now called the National Community Oncology Research Program that we're proud to be a part of that brings clinical trials and the administrative support to them, the funding for them to um, places across the country. Clinical trials for cancer are very much a public resource and a public benefit. And because the public invests in it and owns a share in it. It's first of all really important, as you say, for those funds to be used responsibly and wisely. And the consolidation you talk about is really about resource management, but it's also a boon and a benefit to the public that should be shared as broadly as possible. And and that's why I'm really glad you brought up the community oncology work groups and, and the intent and efforts to expand 
clinical trials availability to the community and particularly extending the reach to the parts of the rural area that can access it as much as possible. That's, that's definitely a noble goal. Well, I think the availability of high-quality cancer clinical trials in this country is is truly a privilege. We pay for it through, through, through taxes. These clinical trials are funded by the National Cancer Institute for the most part, the ones that we perform at our sites. And that's taxpayer-funded institution. And all countries across the world have such access and such an investment in the health of its population. And you can argue taxes should be higher, they should be lower. Well, most people argue they should be lower. But one of the things that taxes do is support the health and wellness of, of our country, and cancer care is one of them. Yeah. I'm going to go back to a few of the things that you said. Those people in the 50s, the idea of standardizing a regimen and cooperating, there's been a lot of cases where it's been more of a competitive mentality, but to cooperate with your competitors, to all do the same thing in the same way, and there's power in numbers. That was a very revolutionary concept, and we need to thank those people that set down those competitive differences and work together. And that's just grown to these huge alliances or cooperative groups. Clinical research is expensive. To answer these tough questions with modern medicine probably can be measured in tens of millions of dollars sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you want that to be coordinated from the top down and everyone working together and not duplicating effort. It's interesting, just the last couple of years in some of our literature, we're starting to see their forefathers that were the people that developed these clinical trials are now in their 90s and passing away. read an obituary for Bernard Fisher, who was a mm -hmm. surgeon at um, the University of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, that was the leader in developing the clinical trial that proved definitively that a lumpectomy and a sentinel lymph node biopsy was every bit as good as a radical mastectomy for treating women with a standard risk breast cancer. And that improved the lives of many, many, many women that didn't have to have disfiguring surgery that is still a standard of care today because of that trial that he coordinated and pushed to the forefront of the NCI in the 1970s. It's been said that the amount of knowledge doubles, and, and I forget exactly the interval, but the amount of medical knowledge doubles every not too many years. I don't know if it's four, seven, or whatever it is. And that's been happening for some time. But that means that by extension, what we think of as the very early days, the first innovators of the modern approach to breast cancer are still within living reach of us in some ways. There's been so much change so, so fast, uh, and it, it is a privilege to see. Yeah. As you mentioned, Brian, the importance of using that taxpayer money to bring research back to the community where, as you said, 85% of patients are treated. It's very important to Wisconsin and our patients in the Upper Peninsula. 80% of the funding from the NIH comes back to the states. It's money well spent. It generates thousands of jobs in our states and helps our patients. And allows that care to be available closer to home as well. And there's patients across this country that live in rural locations that would have to drive three, four hundred miles to get access to, to clinical trials so that taxpayer funded programs like the NCOR bring the the clinical research to patients out in the community. It's a huge financial impact for the patients that don't have to pay four dollars a gallon for gas for a two hundred mile trip one direction to come and get their cancer care that may just allow them to live longer and live better or cure their cancer with a higher likelihood by having this clinical research in the community. And it's been said on this podcast probably a few times about Green Bay Oncology's philosophy is bringing care to the patients. We're the ones 
driving not the patient that's not feeling well. To get the best medical care includes access to top-notch clinical trials. It really needs to be across the country, across the world. The standard of care is clinical research, having opportunities available for patients to improve their own care as well as those for future generations. Well said. One of the challenges that still faces us, this method of conducting clinical trials is safe for patients. It's effective. It makes as efficient use of resources as possible and eliminates duplication. It takes a long time. It takes a very long time to answer clinical questions, to find treatments. Are there any innovations or new approaches on the horizon to try to shorten the amount of time it takes? Well, it's an interesting question for a couple of reasons. When our treatments were really, really bad, it didn't take long to answer questions. Now there's a number of our cancers that treatment has gotten so much better. Instead of answering a question in two or three years on a clinical trial, it might take five to 15 years. So that pace of improvement in the standard of care starts to slow a little bit once treatments get so dramatically better. But the change has been very, very rapid over a very few years now. But there's interesting things being done looking at surrogates for long-term endpoints, meaning early endpoints or early relevant things that happen in the patient's care that can predict for long-term survival, like doing very, very sensitive testing for what they call minimal residual disease for a number of cancers. Seems to predict for long-term outcomes. So can we look at one or two or three-year surrogate like that that can predict long-term outcomes to maintain the rapidity at which improvements are being made in cancer care? When you talk about long-term outcomes, the gold standard you're really talking about is, is somebody living longer or not? And how How much longer? And if you can have a piece of information that will tell you the same thing, if you can have a piece of information that reliably, whether it's a lab test, whether it's a, some other easily measurable clinical indicator that says this person is going to live this amount of time longer than another, then you can shorten the amount of time rather than just waiting to see how long the patient lives. You can predict to a high degree of accuracy how long they are going to live, and it shortens the study time. One of the exciting things, these big, what we would call phase three trials to change the standard of care of some very smart people are putting those secondary endpoints, those surrogate endpoints into it to validate them to speed the process up in the future. Right. So uh, breast cancer, a neoadjuvant treatment, chemotherapy or other treatments prior to surgery, and then using the outcome at surgery as a surrogate for the long-term survival. Right. That can speed the process up by years. Yeah. But you have to know that that's a valid way of doing things. You could be wasting a lot of time if you don't actually test what you're measuring first. And to to a very, very high degree of accuracy because you want your surrogate to be exactly accurate. And there you're really talking about how much and to what percent did the cancer respond to the chemotherapy or whatever we gave before surgery? Did it go completely away? Did it go half away? Something of that sort. Well, it seems very intuitive that if a woman gets chemotherapy before surgery for early stage curable breast cancer, if there's no cancer left at the time of surgery, that's great. That's a good thing. That should lead to long-term outcomes, but that's just being established now and has become a a standard that, yes, that indeed does predict long-term outcomes. We did not know that five years ago, but we we know that now. And it's hard even for doctors and scientists to subject what seems like a powerfully intuitive idea to testing just because there's so many intuitive ideas out there that just aren't so. So one thing I wanted to mention that I just had a discussion at the ECOG Akron meeting with a former mentor, Vincent Rajkumar, was about patient advocates. 
One interesting development over the past 20 or 30 years for clinical trial development and managing clinical trials coming up with ideas has been including patients in that process. And prior to that, oftentimes it was people at big centers across the country that came up with their own ideas on how cancer is best treated. These days at these NCI-funded cooperative groups, there's a patient advocate that sits on every committee for every disease group, but oftentimes on the committee for the um, development of a specific clinical trial. And one of the leaders in, in insisting on that was a, a gentleman with multiple myeloma named Michael Katz that passed away in 2015, I believe, that really engaged in the myeloma community, reached out to investigators across the country and insisted that patients with multiple myeloma, that one of their standards of care at the time was getting boatloads of corticosteroids, dexamethasone was doing more harm than good. And he pushed and pushed and he got leaders through ECUG and Vincent Rajkumar in particular that leaned on him and he was convinced to do a clinical trial. And one of the seminal publications of the last 25 years for multiple myeloma was looking at a new revolutionary drug, lenalidomide, in the early 2000s with either a low or a high dose of dexamethasone. What they found was very, very interesting that patients that had a higher dose of dexamethasone with lots of toxicities, their cancer responded better, significantly better than with a low dose of dexamethasone, but they didn't live as long and they didn't live as well. So the fact that this high-level myeloma investigator that runs clinical trials brought a patient into that process led to people living longer and living better because they listen. And now because of that, and that was a he was a co-author on that paper, Michael Katz, and because of that, he changed how we do clinical trials, bringing more patient voices into each of these developments and each of these decisions, each of these committees to make sure that the questions we're asking are important to patients and the things that are important to patients are those that are important to our investigators and the NCI, as well as the leaders of the various committees at all these cooperative groups that design and facilitate clinical trials for patients, because really it's a patient that's at the, the heart of all of this, and they need to be at the heart of developing clinical trials as well. And that was really a big change, and that led to, again, now it being standard practice to have patients involved in these processes and the development and the implementation of clinical trials. And for myeloma patients, it's been instrumental in taking what was, when I started medical school, a disease that people were lucky to live a couple of years with to a disease that now people routinely yeah. live 10 or more years with. Prior to that development, patients would commonly live a year or two. We had two drugs, neither of which worked. And a select group of patients could get a bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant and do well for a while. But a large majority of patients were around a year or two and suffered greatly. Now today, because of this trial and others and listening to our patients, that survival is more like a decade or two. And patients can do very, very well on well-tolerated therapy that manages their disease very well for a long time. And a big part of that has been patients asking for better, engaging in clinical research, not just in communities, but also through the NCI being advocates for these clinical trials to improve both their care as well as care of patients in the future. So speaking of patients and patient advocates, the, the real heroes in clinical research are those patients that are willing to invest in their own care and in the care of patients in the future to improve the treatments that they have available and other patients do. For patients to realize that the very good treatments we have today that weren't available five or 10 years ago were because people, patients invested in clinical research were willing to participate and to improve their care. And there's many patients out there that'll tell you, well, I, 
I hope that I benefit from this, but it's enough for me knowing that my involvement in clinical research, my willingness to do this may help save a life in the future. And patients can feel very rewarded when they do so. So being able to participate in clinical research as a physician, yes, it's rewarding and I'm privileged to participate in it, but it's really on the backs of patients that these clinical trials lead to improvements in cancer care. So anytime a clinical trial is presented or published, boy, investigators really always need to think of our patients and what it means for them and thank them for their participation. One final note, right now in this country, we're living through a pretty intense anti-science backlash, probably one of the most intense I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I think skepticism is on the rise. I actually think that Skepticism gets a bad rap. Skepticism is actually what good science is. True skepticism is show me the evidence. But it also comes with a requirement to ask good questions and to use a good process and evaluating whether something's true or not. A lot of what's happening right now and a lot of the move away from more rigorous thinking leading us backwards to some of those practices, even cupping and blistering now, which if you've seen the backs of any MMA fighters in the ring recently, you've noticed this is starting to get increasingly popular. Are there any tips for our listeners about how to cultivate critical thinking and how to sift through all the noise and the chatter that's out there that's on social media, that's on the internet about how to weigh something, how to evaluate something, how to de- decide what's snake oil and what's not? First of all, I'd say try to stay away from social media to get your information and data. Social media, the algorithms are designed to increase engagement and thus increase revenue, such that if you go into something feeling one way, well, this might be the right treatment, and I'm not really sure about this one, it starts to take you down into a wormhole that polarizes your thinking, whether that's clinical research or medical care or anything else. And it just, it can gradually work people down to a very polarized point of view that really we didn't have that 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had some more reliable sources at the time and whatever platform people are are using, again, they're driven by engagement, revenue, bring people back onto that platform. So if you think about things in one specific way, they have a financial incentive as a company to get you more engaged and get you thinking more strongly about that and move you in that direction. And part of what we saw with the pandemic with treatment options that were available and so much fear of the unknown, people had that fear of the unknown, were skeptic of things, and it, they just got driven down a certain direction, um, depending what their baseline views were that led to more polarization. One that in some ways brought people to trust the medical system more, but in some ways, other people trusted the medical system less than what they were hearing, but that social media polarization really made that gap much wider, in my opinion. Definitely social media can amplify the false and the misleading. The internet generally is, however, a wonderful tool for patients, for family members, even for clinicians. And I, I think everybody sitting around the microphone right now, it's probably their you know, number one reference. But, but it's all about finding the right resources, using the right tools. And how do you help patients recognize information that's likely to be credible, that's likely to be applicable of their information? I think the tips that I give people, first of all, good science is based on numbers and not just single individual case reports. So any 
claim or any product or any treatment that's based primarily on individual testimonials is not scientific and really should be regarded as likely false. The other thing I tell patients is if they're selling it like they sold snake oil, meaning it's good for everything that ails you and it's not targeting a specific treatment, and then it probably is. So I think those are some very broad tips to keep in mind. And the third tip is always demand high quality evidence before deciding whether something's true or not. And high quality evidence does not include Facebook and does not include Instagram. Yeah, I always encourage patients to, if they have information out there, they want to bring it in and we can look at it together. And then we can look through those levels of evidence and see is this a valid source? Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to debunk things, as you said, that are just based on a few testimonials and outrageous claims. Mm -hmm. Or I've been educated many times by patients bringing information that I wasn't aware of. It was just published hot off the press. And and it's benefited their care. Mm -hmm. It's also important to keep in mind that there are things that we don't know. There are some complementary and alternative treatments that people believe in. And they may be anecdotes, they may be testimonials, but people truly believe in them. And if they feel it's helping them, that may be enough of a benefit for them to do it. Even if it isn't truly making them live longer, live better, it's giving them some comfort. They're doing everything in their power to try to get better. And there's things that we can do as as providers to look into that, make sure it's not going to interact or harm them because of any of the other treatments they're giving. But one of the worst things that we can do is be very adamant, no, you can't take this. We won't treat you if you're going down this road. Even though we might disagree with the approach a patient takes on some non-evidence-based treatment, that doesn't mean we can't support them in what they're doing and help to protect them and be available for them as they're doing it. Ultimately, we work for the patients and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Matthew, Brian, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.